This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, ADST. For more, check out our website at adst.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. South Africa existed under an apartheid state for over four decades. During this time, black people were denied citizenship and placed in a subordinate position to white people in all aspects of life. After this system was abolished, the new government of national unity established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, TRC, to help heal the wounds caused by this system. Monica Joy worked for the TRC Media Office from 1996 to 1997. In the following podcast, she shares her thoughts on the impact of the TRC and her experience working for the leader of the TRC, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. She also reflects on the Amy Beale incident. Amy Beale was an anti-apartheid activist who was murdered by four black men in 1993. They were convicted for murder, but later released as part of the TRC process. I, st- I started in February 96, um, and, and was, and because of my media experience here in Washington, I got assigned to the media office. You know how, how the rest of the world was waiting for the other shoe to drop? Because this is impossible. This whole transfer of power that had gone over so peacefully, something has to happen. And the other shoe has never dropped. Thank you know, thank God and you know Allah and Jah. <laughs> but um, it's 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 never happened. And I think um, this was also to appease the fears of white South Africans, but at the same time to, in my view, to give answers to those many mothers who had lost their children and their loved ones uh, through this whole apartheid process. And if you look at the whole notion of of amnesty, how um, the perpetrators some of them were granted amnesty. And you begin to wonder, you know, um, what a forgiving nation black South Africans are specifically. As, you know, uh, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu was also the chairperson, he saw it more as a catharsis for the, for the nation. So that post-94, you have this cleansing process um, for the nation. Right. What was it that convinced perpetrators to go testify to, not testify, to, to be present in a process that could likely turn against them? I think, you know, there's something about your conscience that eats at you, and it's, it's, it's almost like somebody, you know, a motorist who knocks over a pedestrian and a day later he or she would read in the papers that person died. Wants to be clean. And they want to come clean and, you know, give themselves up as the expression goes. 
And so, and so to me, all of those perpetrators, I don't, I want to believe they didn't sleep lightly at night. And so they wanted to, you know, if, if there's something troubling you, you wanted to get off your chest. Did they understand from the very start that this was a cathartic, the, the purpose was catharsis? Uh, because at the beginning, I imagine, before Tutu left his mark on this process, there must have been some questions about where this would go. Uh, there was, again, amnesty was never promised. I don't think anybody knew where it was going to go. And yet people came freely. People came because it was part of that, as I would see it, that euphoria, uh -huh. that, that liberating euphoria. Uh, here you were in, a, in an environment where the majority of our people were under this law of apartheid, and it gets dismantled. And I still maintain that whole process started in 1976, mm -hmm. when our youth decided enough is enough. Um, they were tired, I guess, as the late uh, ANC president Oliver Tambo says, to turn. There, there are no more cheeks to turn. And um, so here you are with, with a, a peace-loving co uh, communities and, and a people who've had this liberation start for them. The first time many of them voted, if you look back to those long lines, on the 27th of April, 1994. And so it's almost that the, that the TRC had to happen. And, and I think that period must have given those individuals a way to come clean, regardless whether, what, what would happen at the end. If you look at the incident with Amy Beale, mm. you know, the Fulbright student, right. and however, what happened with that process is how Amy Beale's parents embraced these men who supposedly murdered their daughter. And, and you see how cathartic that process was. Make, you know, listening, listening to the parents, these young men going to the parents and asking for forgiveness. And instead of Amy Beale's parents turning their backs on these young men, they embraced them. So, in fact, they created their own TRC, they actually... With, with, with the foundation. With the parents, yeah. With, with the, yeah, but, but again, you see, um, that to me, that epitomizes what, you know, having the TRC was all about, um, which to me, to me was, you know, the TRC started, but it was leading to forgiveness. I, I never went to any of the hearings. I did not... On a personal level, and I guess on, on principle, I didn't understand how wounds that have been healed, and, and, and specifically in terms of the parents, the mothers, how they had to be reopened. And I was always concerned about the aftermath. Who goes home with these mothers? Who, go, who goes home with these parents? And there may have been a process in place. I wasn't aware of it. But, I, but personally, I was just critical about that. 
it's, it's, a, it's a cathartic experience. I accept that. The reality for me was, here you are appearing before the commission. Um, you talk about your, you know, a member of your family and you bare your soul, you cry your eyes out and you leave that the confines of that meeting and you go out and you return home. What happens to that individual? That Personally, that, that bothered me. You said that you did not attend the hearings. Uh, no. Tell us why. I'm, I'm too much of a coward. I... If I, in fact, I would watch television and see how mothers break down, and my tears would be flowing. And so, emotionally, I didn't feel I would be strong enough to be sitting there and and go to a hearing because some of them were held in our building, and um, I just wasn't, you know. Uh, shifting a little bit, tell us. Um your role in the in that work, what, what type of work, uh, how, how, what was your function? Well, as I said, I, I worked in the media office mm -hmm. and uh, I would receive some journalists if they wanted to meet and interview the Archbishop. I also worked with the journalists who worked for the TRC and who um, worked in KwaZulu-Natal, in Johannesburg, Gauteng area, and the Eastern Cape. That's where they were stationed. But they also lived there. And uh, occasionally they would all converge and come to Cape Town. Um, so it was more also logistical um, working relationships. Can you tell it? Now, you must have worked very closely with the Archbishop. Well, well I, as I said... Um, I, I would also arrange interviews for him, especially with international media. And on you know, some occasions I would sit in on the interviews. Everybody knows he's a charismatic leader, um, very affable. And I thought at the time easily accessible because some of my uh, friends from a church that I attend the Presbyterian Church Redeemer in Northeast, um, there were two, two or three women who came, and they came to visit me at the TRC, and I arranged for them to meet with, um, with the Archbishop. And it was a moment in their lives that I think they would not forget I also remember there was an interview in one of our local newspapers and the Archbishop says he loves the rum and raisin ice cream. And next best thing, this huge box was delivered to the... Uh, he also said he likes rum and coke. And, and was, so every time he said he liked something, I guess everybody rallied to ensure that well, he gets it. Well, he's a man it. that many people love and he's... He, um, he, he's a jokester. He, he he's a fun person, yeah. He's a clown. So yeah. his public image, from what you see, is the real thing. Oh, absolutely. And he insisted also 
in hugging all the women every day. And he would say, did I hug you today? And, and what's interesting is um, I'd met him in 96 and in 2005, almost 10 years later, I was invited by uh, one of the representatives of the Desmond Tutu uh, Trust to a breakfast and he was there and I was waiting for a colleague of mine because I'd invited one of my colleagues at the US Embassy, Rodney Ford. Oh, yeah. I invited him to come along and I was waiting for him and as I was standing there, he comes up to me and he points a finger he says, where have you been? I haven't seen you in ages. And I was surprised because I mean, I left the TRC in 97. And, um, yeah, yeah. Wow. I do know that Desmond Tutu was involved in all of the, the TRCs outside of, of South Africa, uh, including the ones for the Solomon Islands. So I think his, his expertise in, in, the, in the aspects of forming the TRCs were, uh, you know, put into good use. Um, and and then I I, th I think it's it's um, it's a collective of uh, the country, you know, coming together, coming to address um, what's hurting the country. Do you feel that the model can work in almost any country? I think country? so. I think so. And, and, and also, um, to me, you know, human beings are no different from each other. Uh, we all breathe, we all smile, we all hurt. And so that level of hurt may be intensified in some cases. But, you know, the basic uh, traits of, of, of human beings exist. And if there is some how your hand can be held or if you can be held, uh, hugged, um, I think the response would be the same. But I think um, it reminds me of, I have a friend, uh, Yali Wejia, who taught at the University of Fort Hare. And Yali Wejia is Y-A-L-I-W-E-J-I-Y-A. And her husband, Zin, was... Uh, in the United Kingdom and a colleague of his died a white colleague and and Yaliwe went to represent her husband and attended the funeral and she said she saw the widow with her two children standing there in sorrow at the funeral and she said all she did was to walk over and hug her and that's all that this woman needed and so that picture is always in my mind. You know, reaching out to somebody can be very clinical, but it can also be very emotional. And, um, and all she did was to touch this person. Yeah. And nobody around her, in, in a, even her family and other white attendees, no one thought of that. And she said, as you know, in our tradition, we reach out. And, and, and then if you think
think back to Desmond Tutu, he was forever hugging everybody. And I think at several of the of the hearings, he would break down and and cry. And I thought, if the chairperson could break down, and he's and he's right there and he's got to listen to all of this, you know, that that, that says a lot. You know, there are many, many, many critics, South African critics of the process, but. I, I would say, even though I have my own criticisms, I would say at least something was done. And I think South Africa needs to be, um, you know, recognized for taking that step. I remember coming here for the first time in 1977, and, and I met this man who took me to meet a South African woman. And she was in her 70s. And he introduced me to her, and she looked at me, and she said, my child, all I want to do is go home and lay down my weary bones. Of course, that's opened the floodgate of tears. We hugged each other, and the tears just flowed. And I don't think she ever made it home. Uh, We haven't mentioned, I think, a very important part of this, which is amnesty. Uh, Do you... Um, The mother who goes home after this process traumatized or goes through a catharsis, uh, what goes through that person's mind knowing that the perpetrator receives amnesty? In, in order to, to be granted amnesty, you had to fully disclose the truth. And again, you ask, how is fully disclosing the truth measured? How would you disclose the truth and are you telling the entire truth? And also, that's, and, and to me, that's open to interpretation. And so, you are only granted amnesty if you have fully disclosed the truth. If you look at the Beale family, to me, they, they epitomize what truth is all about. Because they open themselves up to having these perpetrators disclose the truth because, because the Beale family were open and, and accessible. It gives the, the perpetrators an opportunity to come clean. That, that, that's, to me, that would be a human reaction because if I see that Dan is allowing me to come to him, that he's embracing me, to, to um, have a conversation and to talk about what truly happened. A lot would depend on how Dan accepts me. That, 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 that's what my understanding would be. Because um, my, my question in life has always been that you respond to somebody as that person responds to you. And if you open yourself up, you're allowing me to open myself up as well. So there's almost like a meeting of minds. And I think only then, and, and I think, you know, the Bills and, and the three young men uh, were able to, um, to successfully, in my view, see it through and to truly, re- they actually are the examples of having 
taken full advantage, quote-unquote, of that catharsis. Because, the young, you know, there are extensive articles of, you know, uh, I think Peter Beale has since passed on, but the mother Linda Beale has this foundation and the, these men are working there and they've traveled together and it's almost they've meshed into, into a family. Now, the Beals are notable because their example is so striking. In some ways, maybe it's also an exception. Um, what about the people who cannot open themselves in that way? Uh, again, um, I'm curious your, your opinion about, the, uh, about amnesty to people who could not rise to the level of the Beale family. I'm, not everybody reacts the same way. No, no, no. I, uh, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, but let's just say we're in conjecture here. Do you have any experience, put it that way, do you have any experience with the parents of the victims or the relatives of the victims uh, unable to open themselves? What, did, were they, did they accept amnesty? I, as, I do not have direct experience, but I do know um, there were some perpetrators granted amnesty, although some members of the family didn't think they warranted because they did not disclose the truth. And, of course, there are also perpetrators who were denied amnesty. And so, goes back to what I said earlier on about one's conscience, and so they would forever carry that burden in their hearts or in their minds. I think, I think anybody who, I want to believe anyone who was prepared to appear before the, um, the commission and to speak, I would want to believe that it's with the idea of closure that you referred to earlier. But again, I still maintain that aftermath has been my concern. So, so I think if, if, if you are you know, prepared to confront an issue, it's to, you know, to start a clean slate. Um, but human beings are fallible individuals, so there might have been many who were not, who went there with anger and left with anger. But to me, I was more concerned about the majority who broke down and who did not leave with anger, but, with a, with, but they left with a wound that's wide open. So it's, it's difficult to gauge individual psyche, but you want to believe that as a human being, there are traits that we all have in common. And some of us would use it as a weapon, and others of us would use it, and I, th again, think of the Beals, how that helped them deal with their daughter's death. And also, if you look at those young men, how they could go deep into themselves to say, as an individual who's been anti-white, 
I could embrace this white family or this, the parents of this white girl whom we had murdered. So that in itself is a whole study in how the Beals reacted to these individuals, these young men who had murdered their daughter, but how these perpetrators opened themselves up to respond to the Beals and to meet them halfway and to continue the relationship. That to me in itself is, is, is huge. I'd, I'd never thought about it for the longest time, but the more I'm speaking to you now, the more I think of, you know, of possibilities that just studying the Amy Beale case in itself could lead to so many ways of looking at this notion of, of reconciliation. ADST is an independent nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. ADST's oral history collection, begun in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories, unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that helped shape foreign policy. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org. Thanks for listening.